Revelation 17, the title of our message here today, The Coming World Religion. We've been making our progress through this wonderful book of Revelation. There's blessings on every page. There's mysteries on every page. And uh, the fiction writers can't hold a candle to the Word of God. And the book of Revelation has been quite a blessing to me. Uh, The teacher always learns more than the student, but I pray that you have also enjoyed it as well. Heard about a school teacher of third graders who was uh, teaching a unit to her class about the different world religions. So the teacher thought it would be a good idea to have a show and tell day. And that would encourage her students to share about their different religious backgrounds. And so the show and tell came around and the little Catholic girl stood up and she said, I'm Catholic and I brought these rosary beads today because they help us pray. Then a, a little Muslim boy stood up and he brought the Quran out and he said, this is our holy book. Then a little Jewish boy stood before the class with a menorah and he explained, this is a menorah and we light the candles during Hanukkah. And then it was little Johnny's turn. Little Johnny stepped before the class, opened his backpack and pulled out a Corningware casserole dish. And the teacher was quite surprised. She said, well, tell us Johnny, why did you bring that dish today? And Johnny explained, he said, well teacher... You see, I'm a Southern Baptist. (laughs) And as much as uh, we Baptists like to eat, you could have a case there. But then I also heard about a a rabbi who uh, moved into a town to serve at a synagogue. Now that town that he moved to had a Catholic church, had a mosque, and it had a Baptist church as well. And this new rabbi thought, well maybe it would be a good idea if I get with all the clergy of the town, and we share a lunch together. And so he invited them out, and as these different religious leaders were sitting around the table, they began to talk, and wouldn't you know, the conversation went in the direction of they began to admit and discuss some of their various vices. The rabbi confessed, he said, sometimes I fail at keeping kosher, and I sneak by McDonald's and I get me a sausage biscuit. Then the Catholic priest opened up and he said, Well, I struggle with my vow of celibacy and the people don't know it, but I have several secret girlfriends. The Muslim imam opened up and he said, uh, Well, guys, while we're all airing our laundry, you should know that I like to go down to the casino and gamble. Of course, you know that's against the Muslim religion. And Finally, it was time for the Baptist preacher to come clean and he said, Boys... He said, I've always had a problem with the sin of gossip and I can't wait to get out of here. (laughs) If you're not laughing at that, you haven't been in a Baptist church for very long. Well, if you can't tell, today I'm going to be talking about religion with a capital R. Now, there's a difference between religion... And what we're doing today. Religion is man's attempt to try and do something for God. But true Christianity is about what God has already done for us. Now for centuries, our world has been divided by religion. Many experts today though are noticing that as our world 
is growing more interconnected through technology and economics and globalism that religion has followed suit. In fact, many of the leaders of world religions are coming together and seeking peace and unity with each other. Today, there are multiple groups who are striving for what they call an interfaith dialogue, or a bigger word, ecumenism. There's groups like the Parliament for World Religions, or the World Council for Churches. Then there's another called the United Religions Initiative. And what they do is they encourage leaders from Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, etc., to come together and to set aside all of their religious differences and form one faith for all mankind. Now that will never work for the true Bible believer, will it? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now currently, the poster child for this interfaith movement is the media darling Pope Francis. In fact, Francis made headlines earlier this year when he met with the grand imam, Sheikh Ahmed El Tayyib. And they were having a summit in the country of the United Arab Emirates. And both of these figureheads signed a document which was entitled, A Document on Human Fraternity for World Peace and Living Together. And so here you have two leaders from the Catholics and the Muslims pledging that they would, quote, according to this article, work to create a worldwide culture of tolerance and acceptance. Now you read that, and it sounds all warm and fuzzy. Finally, it appears that the religions of the world are going to get around the campfire and sing kumbaya. But in reality, what these leaders don't realize is that they are in fact paving the way for the Antichrist. Now, it may be a surprise to some of you today to learn that the devil is not against religion. In fact, religion is one of Satan's primary tools that he uses to deceive and mislead people. And as you read the book of Revelation, it becomes abundantly clear that he's going to use religion in the end times. The old southern evangelist Vance Havner said this decades ago, quote, the devil is not fighting religion. He's anti-Christ, not anti-religion. He's producing a counterfeit Christianity so much like the real thing that most folk won't be able to tell the difference. The Scriptures tell us that in the last days men will not endure sound doctrine and heap up for themselves teachers to tickle ears. He wrote, We currently live in an epidemic of this itch and popular preachers have turned ear-tickling into a fine art. Now, if that was true 50 years ago when Vance Havner wrote it, then how much more is it true today in this age of apostasy? Now, we come to Revelation 17, and what we find is there is coming a single religious system that the Antichrist will employ to help bolster his world empire. In fact, the interfaith dialogue of today is really just a prototype of tomorrow's blasphemous religion. Now John is going to use some very symbolic language to describe this final world religion. He uses graphic terms, and really there's no way to doctor this up. 
But he pictures this world religion as a prostitute riding a grotesque beast. And so I want to spend some time in this text and show you five characteristics of this coming world religion. The first one is this, reading in chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Number one, the mysterious character of the woman. The mysterious character of the woman. Read with me in verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Now, as you study the book of Revelation, you notice that there are four prominent women. There is first Jezebel, who appears in chapter 2. She's associated with the false religion that had infiltrated the church at Thyatira. Then in chapter 12, where we meet another significant woman, it's the celestial woman who is pregnant with male child, and she is a picture of Israel giving birth to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now we come to chapter 17, and we see the scarlet harlot. It's the Babylon prostitute. And then, finally, we will meet eventually in chapter 19, the bride of Christ, the church. So, in these four women of Revelation, two are good and two are wicked. Now, we read here that John portrays this world religion of the end times through the symbolism of a prostitute dressed in red. Now, that's interesting because in the Old Testament, when God described the idolatry and the sin of Israel, He always did so in terms of spiritual adultery. In fact, God devoted a whole book to this. It's called the book of Hosea. And he called that prophet to do a very interesting thing, to marry a prostitute, a woman whom he knew was going to be unfaithful. So Israel was supposed to be faithful to God as a bride is to a husband. And, and from God's perspective, idolatry was like cheating on God with false deities. And so this same metaphor now emerges again here in Revelation to describe this coming world religion. She will abandon the truth, and she will prostitute herself to the kings and the leaders of the world so that she can form the ultimate union between church and state. And like a seductress, this coming world religion is going to entice followers from all over the globe to come and worship. Even the kings and the leaders we read there will be intoxicated. They will be held spellbound by her doctrines. Now we know who's going to help build this religion. We met him in the second half of chapter 13 in Revelation, the false prophet, the right-hand man of Satan's superman, the Antichrist. And his job will actually be made easier during the end times to form this religion because Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.7 that during that time God is going to send a strong delusion over the world. Now, you can already begin to see a lot of the popular mantras of this world religion in our day. In fact, I was driving 
uh, just the other day to and from the hospital driving around Asheville. Do you ever look at the bumper stickers that people have on the back of their cars? There's a lot of bumper sticker theology out there. And you can see this kind of world religion thinking on these bumper stickers. You see this quite often around the city of Asheville. Coexist. Or we are all one. Or tolerance. And then it's interesting when you actually begin to talk about tolerance. They're not very tolerant, are they? Especially if you bring up Jesus Christ. I'll tell you one of the, my favorite bumper stickers of all time, though. Uh, Christians have some pretty good ones, too. My Uncle Ricky, who's a preacher, he used to drive a raggedy old Subaru hatchback wagon, and on the back of that, he had a bumper sticker that said this, Warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. <laughs> That's pretty good. I thought, you know, maybe I should come up with one. Warning, in case of rapture, you can have my car. Amen? I'm leaving it all behind. I won't need it where I'm going. There's going to be streets of gold. There's going to be resurrection body. There's going to be the Lamb of God who lights up eternity just with His glory. And so we see the mysterious character of this woman. Then number two, as we read, I want you to see the mischievous children of the woman. Verse 5, here's what the Bible says. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now we read there that she's a mother, and if she's a mother, that means she must have what? Children. Now, this harlot has a unique name. We read it there, Babylon the Great. And that title right there tells us a lot about not only her spiritual origin, but her spiritual offspring as well. You'll remember, Babylon has always been an important city in the Bible. In fact, there are two major cities mentioned throughout Genesis to Revelation. Jerusalem, the city of God, and Babylon, second most mentioned behind Jerusalem, which is always a picture of the city of man. Babylon was once the grandest capital on the most powerful nation in the world. Bible students will remember that if you go back to Genesis in chapters 10 and 11, there we meet the first world dictator, a man named Nimrod. His name actually means rebel. And he founded the city of Babel, and there with the high priests of paganism, they tried to build a tower, an altar, if you will, a mountain reaching into the heavens, a monument to humanism. But we continue reading there and we find out that God judged mankind. You remember He confused the languages. He introduced the various tongues. So that that construction project went to a grinding halt. After that failed tower project, men started to spread across the face of the earth, leaving Babel. And when they went, they took with them all of their pagan practices. So the false religion that started in Babylon was really exported to every civilization, and it has become the basis for every form of idolatry, paganism, astrology, witchcraft, etc. So, the pantheon of gods from Egypt, to Greece, to Phoenicia, to Assyria, to Rome, have all come from one place. They've all come from Babel. And Babel will be not only the cradle, but it will also be the grave of all man's false religion. This will come full circle. Now, we can see the spirit of Babylon is still with us today. In fact, it's being resurrected in some very interesting forms. 
Any of you been reading about the European Union? You know anything about the European Union? We know from Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 that there will be a form of the revived Roman Empire in the end times. And it is very likely, many experts think, that the European Union that we see today is the foundation, is the groundwork for that coming Rome 2.0. Well, when the EU Parliament uh, decided to build, they selected a site where they were going to build their headquarters. It was in Strasbourg, France. And when they built their meeting place, their parliament building, they intentionally modeled it off of that famous painting of Babel by the artist Bruegel. Obviously, they didn't read the Bible very well because uh, that enterprise didn't end good for the builders of Babel. But what does it say about them that they are intentionally selecting Babel as their influence? If you go to Brussels, Belgium, outside the EU building there, is a huge iron statue of a woman riding a beast. It's that, that sculpture is taken directly from the text that we are studying today. An interesting selection because things don't end well for the woman on the beast either, or the beast. Earlier, I mentioned Pope Francis. Pope Francis, the media is absolutely in love with this guy, if you haven't noticed. But we can see shades of this spirit in his rhetoric. He's already openly stated that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Did you hear me? He says, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. I'm glad the Pope doesn't speak for me. Friend, Muhammad and Allah are nothing like Jesus Christ. Hey, my God isn't dead in the ground. Jesus rose in power and victory. That, my, the book that I read from is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and not corrupted like the Quran. Hey, my God doesn't tell me, prove how much you love me by strapping a bomb to your chest. My God proved how much He loved me by strapping a cross to His back, walking the hill of Calvary, and dying for my sins. Hey, don't you believe the lie that Muslims and Jews and Christians all get together and worship the same God. Friend, there's only one Jesus Christ. There's only one who rose from the dead. Only one who healed blind eyes. Only one who raised the dead. Only one who paid for your sin debt in mine. Friend, don't you ever put somebody else on the same platform and platitude as my Jesus Christ. There's no one like Him. There's no one beside Him. There's no one above Him. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And friend, as something stirs in my spirit, an un, a, a godly uh, anger wells up within me when I hear a supposed man of God step forward and say, oh, they're all the same. Friend, they're not the same. Why don't you read the Bible and see? Now listen to me. In a question and answer session, a gay man from Chile approached Pope Francis. And he asked the Pope, what are your thoughts on homosexuality? And here's what he said. It doesn't matter. God made you this way. Last year, a boy named Emmanuel came up to Pope Francis at a public event in Rome. And he asked the Pope, he said, my father recently died. My daddy was an atheist. Pope, will he go to heaven? 
Francis replied by asking the crowd. He said, what do you think, crowd? And the resounding reply came back, no, no, no. And then he said, there, child, is your answer. You see his statement? He wants to remove all lines of distinction. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Muslim or gay or straight or atheist or a believer. He's saying as long as you're sincere, God's just going to wink at your sin, sweep it under the rug, and accept you. Friend, if it smells like smoke, where's it from? It's a lie from the pit of hell. And this is the kind of pandering that our world is going to go after. So we see, number one, the mysterious character of the woman, the mischievous children of the woman, and then number three, the murderous conduct of the woman. Read with me in verse 6. The Bible says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This year the BBC reported this headline, quote, Christian persecution near genocidal levels. This article that I read went on to explain that Christians are the most hated, most persecuted group on the planet. And in some parts of the world, like the Middle East, Christianity is in threat of being completely wiped out. There's an international group that studies persecution called Open Doors. They reported that in 2018, just last year, 4,136 known Christians were martyred for their faith. That's an average of 11 Christians killed every day. And 1,266 churches around the world were attacked. Is it interesting to you that our media remains strangely silent about this? They want to report on the gay pride march. Or the Mueller investigation. Or whatever. But they don't actually report on Christians getting killed. You know why? Because there's a double standard in our world. Now the Bible tells us that this hatred against Christianity is only going to increase as our world hurdles toward the end times. In fact, according to this passage, the greatest persecution against the church that the world is ever going to see will be perpetrated by the Antichrist and the Scarlet Harlot, this organized religion. Jesus said that this was going to happen. He predicted it. That the earth's soil will turn red with the blood of the martyrs. In Matthew 24 and verse 9, look at what he said. They will deliver you up to the tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. Friend, listen to me today. Don't expect as we go forward the Christian walk to get easier. In fact, I've already made up my mind as the Bible teaches us. Things are not going to get easier in this country or in the world, to be a child of God. Expect to be hated. Expect to be persecuted. Expect to be pushed out to the fringes and made the enemy called bigots and homophobes and all the labels that they want to put on the church. Expect it. Jesus said it was going to happen. So the murderous conduct of the woman, the mischievous children of the woman, the mysterious character, and then number four, Notice here the monstrous consort of the woman. The monstrous consort. Verse 7 and 8 is where we will be reading. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to arise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. 
and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now, I know that that sounds confusing upon a first read, but let me break it down for you. The same angel who showed John this stunning vision actually interprets the meaning the beast that the harlot rides is none other than the Antichrist. You say, well, how do we know this? Because the same symbols, the seven heads and the ten horns, have already been used. They've been used in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, to describe there the Antichrist's political authority. In fact, the woman that rides the beast kind of suggests that she exerts control over the beast, at least in the first part of their relationship, but as we're going to continue reading, that's going to change. Now, we also learn in chapter 13 of Revelation, in verse 3, that the Antichrist is going to amaze the world when he miraculously recovers from a fatal wound. In fact, the Antichrist will perform a counterfeit resurrection from the dead, mimicking and mocking the resurrection of Jesus. And these verses that we just read here, verses 7 and 8, seem to be an allusion to this, that the beast is going to rise from the bottomless pit, and the world, those who have accepted him, are going to marvel over his return to life. And so when he comes back to life, we know that he's going to have greater satanic power to control and influence the world. It's a very respected Bible scholar by the name of Ron Rhodes. Listen to what he said in one of his books. He said, quote, This will be the miracle that will catapult the Antichrist from the status of a governor to a global god. Satan will pull off this master trick with his best illusion yet. Perhaps he will heal a non-fatal wound or feign an assassination attempt. In any event, he wrote, Satan's vast experience in deceiving human beings will be his major asset in pulling this off. If talented Las Vegas musicians can use sleight of hand or trick large crowds, how much more can Satan, the father of lies, who has thousands of years of experience, be able to deceive the masses? So, we come to number five. We've seen the mysterious character of the woman, her mischievous children, her murderous conduct, her monstrous consort, and now number five, I want you to notice as we close today, the momentous calamity of the woman. The ride of the scarlet harlot will not last very long. In fact, it will come to an abrupt end, the Bible says. And this text points out that there's actually two stages of demise that will befall not only the beast, but also the prostitute, the puppet and the puppeteer. First, we see that the beast will devour the woman. Read with me verse 15, and you will see this. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns you saw, they and the beast will, watch this, hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So we read here that one of the final acts of treachery of the Antichrist is to discard of the harlot once she has fulfilled his desires. And the imagery is quite fitting here that the beast devours the woman. Just as a lustful man would throw away a woman 
after a one-night stand he's taken advantage of her, so too the Antichrist is going to reject and destroy the religious system that he used only for his personal gain. His end goal, of course, is to establish a religion in which he is God. And Paul explained this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Look at what he said there. The man of sin, when he is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes the seat in the temple of God. That's the future temple in Jerusalem. And he proclaims himself to be a God. So all of this for the Antichrist is a means to an end. He desires only one thing, the beast does, and that is for the world to bow down and to worship him. Now, that's the first stage of this great calamity. The beast will devour the woman. But here's the final stage. Don't you know that God always gets to write the last end of the story? God always gets to settle the score. He gets to balance the scales. He gets to reign triumphant on the earth. Look at what verse 14 tells us. The Bible says there that they, speaking of the woman and the beast, will make war on the Lamb. How foolish do you have to be to fight God? Hey, I'll take God and me alone. That's a majority, amen? They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him, that's you and me, are called chosen and faithful. Somebody give Him praise in the house of God today. The Antichrist and His followers don't know it, but they are actually fulfilling the will of God. God, the Bible tells us, is the one who puts it into their hearts to destroy the Babylonian religious system, and He will use the wicked to judge the wicked. And according to Revelation 16, which we studied last week, God is going to pave the way for the Antichrist and all the armies of the world to gather at one place called Armageddon so that Jesus Christ can return and defeat all of His enemies with one word in one final blow. And on that day, the beast and the false prophet and all the armies of the world are going to learn a hard lesson, and that is your arms are too short to box with God. You see, with one mighty word, this lamb will reveal himself as he truly is, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And those standing on the other side of that roar are going to fall down dead. This is our God. This is our conquering king. Friend, I can't wait for the final act of God's divine drama to begin. For the church to exit and the curtain to rise and for Jesus to take hold of the title deed of the earth. But you know why I'm ready? Because I'm ready. You say, what do you mean? Because my account has been settled. I went to an old altar as a seven-year-old boy during VBS and I understood in my own limited way that I was a great sinner and that I needed a great Savior and His name was Jesus. And He forgave me and cleansed me. There's one application that we could make from this text. It's this. The world is being set right now for the Antichrist's final world religious system. We already see it taking place. And in the growing animosity towards Christians, they're attacking the central message of the gospel. And you know what that is? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's John 14, 6. Jesus is the only way. Today, there's a spirit of pluralism which says, oh, all roads just lead to the mountaintop. Just believe what you want, and it's all equally valid ways to get to heaven. 
Today, if you stand up and you say that Jesus is the only Savior of mankind, you know what they tell you? You're narrow-minded. You're hateful. You're intolerant. Friend, I don't even deserve one way. And yet God provided it. As the religions of the world gradually meld together, you know what we in this church need to do? We need to get a bulldog grip on John 14, 6 and don't let go of it. Hey, don't you begin to drink the Kool-Aid of the world out there that tells you it's all just one religion. It's all the same. Jesus said it. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. John Phillips in one of his books tells a great story that speaks to this very issue. Listen to this as I close. Years ago, there was a pioneer missionary who went to Africa to take the gospel to a new tribe that had never heard the name of Jesus before. The missionary stopped at the last village on the border of this vast jungle which lay ahead. Beyond that point, no white man had ever gone. And since the missionary did not know the way to this village he was trying to reach, he talked to the local chief there. Was there anybody there, he asked the chief, who could act as a guide to lead him deep into the heart of the jungle to that lost people? So the chief summoned a man, tall, strong, battle-scarred, and he had a large machete in his hand. And a bargain was made, and the next morning the missionary and the guide set off through the bush. As they trudged through the jungle, the way became increasingly rough. The vegetation was so thick and even impassable in some ways, but the guide just kept going forward, hacking his way through with that machete. After several hours of stumbling through an endless maze of vines and trees, the missionary said, Hey, stop! Stop! And he asked his African guide, he said, Sir, are you sure that you know the way? The guide pulled himself up to full height. And he said, White man, you see this machete in my hand? You see these scars on my body? He said, with this machete, I blazed a trail to the village where you go. You see, I was born there. I came from there. And these scars on my body were made when I made the way. You ask me if I know the way? White man, I tell you, before me there was no way. I am the way. And friends, I tell you that story to say this. The Lord Jesus is not just a way. He's the way. Before Him, there was no way. If we could see His hands and feet today, we'd see the scars on His body when He came from heaven to earth and made a way for us by dying on the tree and rising from the dead. And without Him, we are utterly lost. We can never know God through man-made religion. Not only is He the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but friend, He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And He's coming back in power, in victory, in great glory with all the angels of heaven. And praise God with the church too. He's going to settle the score. He's going to write the last lines of history. He's going to balance the scales of justice and friend rule on a restored earth. Do you know Him today? Is He your Savior? As our musicians are coming now, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you need to do business with God, this will be your opportunity. Maybe you need to repent of a sin in your life. There's something in your life that's not right. 
You know what it is the Holy Spirit has told you. And you need to confess that to the Lord. This altar is going to be open. Maybe you don't have the passion and the fire that you once had living for the Lord. You want to have a revival in your heart. Hey, you know the best way to have a revival is draw a circle, stand in it, and say, God, begin a revival inside this circle. Maybe you're lost. And you know you're lost. You're undone and without Jesus. And if Christ were to come today, this would be your future. Hey, I'm glad to tell you today that Jesus can rewrite a destiny. He can change your eternal zip code in a moment from hell to heaven. He can take your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. He's a great God full of mercy and grace. Proved His love on the cross. Proved His victory on Easter morning. If you want to come today, even if you just want to pray, you come and you be obedient. Stand with us now. We're going to sing Amazing Grace.